today's episode of It's a PR Thing. I'm your host, Stephanie McFarland, and today we're going to spill the beans on the five limiting beliefs about public relations. Now, if you're a practicing PR professional and you've been practicing for a while, uh, you're going to feel affirmed today. These are very likely limiting beliefs that you have uh, encountered at some point, maybe one, maybe some, maybe all. Um, and if you are a leader in an organization, you're already in the C-suite and you don't have a background in PR, this can be very illuminating for you. And if you're someone right now who's being groomed for the C-suite and you're making that resume checkbox pass through either HR or public relations to get your people skills badge, um, this can be very helpful for you as you are leading those organizations today without having uh, possibly a depth in public relations. So these limiting beliefs, they're very antiquated folks, old school holdover beliefs that go back more than a hundred years and they don't align to modern effective. And that's the most important term there, effective public relations practice today. Welcome everyone to It's a PR Thing. This is the show where we help you build relationships that build business. We'll give you a better understanding of what PR is today and how you can use it to drive your business in ways you never knew you could. If you're ready to build bigger and better relationship capital, then this is the show for you. A fact and info-filled episode lined up today. And as always, we are not overproduced at It's a PR Thing. We pride ourselves on being scrappy, sassy, and sincere, but always striving to bring you scintillating content. So, and today, I'm sure you're going to walk away from this episode with a ton of food for thought. Now, I do want to make today's episode as all-inclusive as possible. You see, PR is what I call one of those plug-and-play professions Although our field is a formal professional discipline, it's supported through formal education, has a specific body of knowledge, um, we have an accreditation process, not everyone in our field is aware of that. Yeah, I know it's a podcast for another day, but the point I want to make is that we have folks who migrate into PR from many different fields. So there are likely folks listening today who may not have been exposed to all that formal education and body of knowledge. So before I launch into these five limiting beliefs, I want you to write down four concepts, and these are good background for today's episode to make complete sense. You ready? Okay, here we go. Number one, body of knowledge. Number two, evolution of communication. Number three, definition of public relations. And number four, relationship capital. So let me dive into the first one briefly. Body of knowledge. This is, by definition, an accumulation of information, studies, data, learning, best practices, all accumulated from practicing professionals and scholars, academics across time in a given profession. So law has a body of knowledge, medicine does, so does accounting, finance, a lot of, a lot of the sciences, psychology comes to mind. And yes, PR also has a body of knowledge that's been accumulated across hundreds of years of human history. We do have a PR museum, believe it or not. Now, the body of knowledge in PR has deepened and grown significantly over the past 100 plus years. And PR practice today is founded in social psychology, not journalism and marketing as most laymen and many organizations think. So in speaking with you today, I'm not making this up from the world according to Steph. Everything I'm gonna to share today, I'm speaking from the PR body of knowledge. So let's talk now about these three communication 
there are three tiers, if you will, of communication evolution. It's probably the best way to describe that. The first one is what we call this one-way communication model. This is often referred to as the press agentry, say that three times fast, or publicity model. And historically, it's associated with P.T. Barnum. And you may be familiar with his infamous phrase, which I still hear today from people. I don't care what you say about me. Just make sure you spell my name right. Now, this model is also called the journalist in residence model because it harkens back to the turn of the 20th century when this feud ignited between what were disparagingly known as the robber barons. So these were like Rockefeller, Carnegie, uh, Frick. And then you had the uh, what were also disparagingly labeled the muckraking yellow journalists of their day. So, of course, those were reporters and news organizations of the time. So these industry leaders like Rockefeller and Carnegie, they would hire journalists away from those news organizations and then task them with developing positive press stories about their companies. So these journalists or journalists in residence, they were the media relations hired guns of the day. Um, and they would, we could probably term their work under that earned media label uh, at, at this point in history. But primarily, they were focused on promoting a message or a narrative, but there's no dialogue in that model. I want you to remember that this model was really all about talking at, not with. Now, the next model is what we call the two-way asymmetrical model. And this is known as the propaganda and promotion model. It's also known as the persuasive model, too, which usually applies to marketing. And while it leverages research on the front end, that research is usually to determine words, messages, images, narratives, and these all ring some kind of affinity bell with you. Um, they, you know, they hit your hot buttons. But the communication in this model, it's more transactional than relationship focused. It's called the propaganda model because it got its footing in the decades following World War I and World War II. And of course, those spurred like war offices or war information offices. They also were uh, a big... Uh, a big impact on the advent of the public information officer role in government. And then there mixed in with all that history was this growing prevalence of television. You know, so now we cross over across the Korean War and now we're into the Vietnam War. And that was a war that in the first time in human history was brought right into people's living homes, uh, excuse me, living rooms each night. And the public sentiment, you know, that that conflict drove across the nation. So the two-way asymmetrical model is used primarily in political campaigning, government administration, and sales activity. But again, the goal is short-sighted. It's to secure a donation, a vote, compliance, or a sale. It's to achieve some kind of a transaction. Now, the final communication model here is what we call the two-way symmetrical. Now, this model is known as the mutually beneficial relationship model or the win-win. And it's also known as the dialogue model. It's considered the most effective model of modern public relations, and it uses what we call this RPI process. So that's research, planning, implementation, and evaluation to drive public relationships. So I wish I had a whiteboard because I, I do a really good diagram with this. So I'm going to try to talk through it. So again, this is where kind of that scrappy part comes in <laughs> to our production. Now, unlike its older cousin, the asymmetrical model, the symmetrical model uses research to seek first to understand. So that's where you're looking to find out what your, what your stakeholders think, where they stand on like your company's reputation, its character, as well as on societal issues that align to your stakeholders' values and principles. 
then the organization uses that research to establish opportunity for dialogue with stakeholders. So we would call that today engagement. Uh, that could be you know anything that we do to communicate. Um, and that then companies use to seek to be understood. So I'm obviously borrowing from Stephen Covey here today. And then you get out there and you form this dialogue so that you can help them understand your business direction, your products, your company culture, and uh, again, uh, you know, societal issues um, and how they align to your business or how your business aligns to those. This model took root in the wake of what was around 1989, 1990. We had this thing called the Great Savings and Loan Crisis. And this sent a rift, kind of started the ball rolling um, with this rift through the U.S. economy, uh, greatly disrupting job security and stability, particularly with the baby boomer generation. And that led to what a lot of experts at the time called this frayed contract with workers and a lack of trust in organizational authority. So today we have this growth now of power in social media. There's no longer a protected field of journalism. We have citizen journalism. So we have people that can now kind of like PR, you can almost kind of plug and play into journalism um, without really having any, any real formal training or background. So we do see citizen journalism everywhere today. And due to the variety of social media platforms and electronic communication, stakeholders now have a lot of power and access to share their sentiments with companies, you know, such as testimonials and so forth. Uh, they can communicate readily and with gusto with their legislators and so forth. And they can form, you know, activist groups to affect companies' policies and decisions. They can form adversarial groups. Therefore, we are now living in this time of, uh, I guess you'd say it's kind of a, a time of dialogue. And rather than the public being these empty vessels waiting for corporate corporations and government authorities as they did in the earlier two models to fill them, now stakeholders are coming to the table prepared and active to engage and to actually impact organizations. Now I want to talk to you about the definition of public relations. It is the management function. Let me repeat that. It is the management function that identifies, builds, and maintains mutually beneficial relationships between an organization and its stakeholders and vice versa. So think of it like this. Communication is the means to the end. It's the vehicle. But public relationship is the ultimate goal. Now this is a good segue into what modern public, effective public relations delivers. And that is relationship capital. You know, companies and organizations, they need financial capital to operate, but relationship capital goes hand in glove with financial capital. I like to think of it as relationships build business and finance fuels business. But you have to have the relationship capital not only to sustain the business in the short term, but also to grow it and build it and fortify it over the long term. Okay, now that we've thoroughly geeked out on all those four foundational concepts and all the book of learning, let's dig into the five limiting beliefs about PR. Two things to quickly keep in mind. Number one, I know there are some of my colleagues out there who are probably thinking only five you came up with only five. I know, I know, I feel your pain. We do have a lot to deal with. But these five are what I would consider to be the salient and instigators of other transgressions against our profession. So now number two, we have to own these limiting beliefs. For decades, we as a profession, PR folks, have allowed our profession, industries, I'm sorry, we've allowed 
other professions, industries, and organizational cultures to define our profession and what we do. And frankly, as individuals, we just get frustrated and we'll generally acquiesce to it. We'll wait for the right moment. And the strongest swimmers among us will escape the island and go somewhere else. There are a number of actions we need to be taking to address the situation. But yes, that's a podcast for another day. And the subject of many numerous thesis papers, dissertations, books, panel discussions, conferences, and you get the point. Now, finally, we are arriving at the grand moment you've been waiting for. We are done building the five limiting beliefs about public relations. Number one, PR is publicity. No, publicity is the one-way communication tier. So there's no dialogue in it. This is a form of communication, as you remember, that was in vogue more than 100 years ago, way outdated. And it only generates awareness. So if you wanna drive people to take any action, you have to move them through three other stages and you have to build a relationship with them along the way to do that. You have to make your awareness so emphatic and prevalent that your stakeholder or potential stakeholder at this point becomes interested enough to seek out more information. And that information then has to be compelling enough to drive your stakeholder to take the next step. And that's where they're going to further evaluate or study your product, services, or cause and or talk with people who have had some experience with your company, products, etc. From there, you usually have to move them to take some type of trial step like sign up for a trial membership, test drive a car, go listen to a political speech, etc. And then, after all of that, you may, you may get your potential stakeholder across the finish line to become a full-fledged member, buy a car, or vote for your candidate. But publicity does not get you there alone. It's just one stage of the fuller relationship building process. Limiting belief number two, PR is storytelling. No. PR is not storytelling. I hear this a lot from folks who made the jump from journalism to PR, like myself, but much like the publicity stage, storytelling is a tool, it's a tactic, and it only gets you so far, and it does not drive solid long-term relationships in any meaningful way on its own. Now, you may get emotional connection, but even that can be canceled out if info about your company or an experience with your company doesn't pan out consistently with your storytelling. So this limiting belief also encompasses spin. In PR, sin is considered lying and deceit. It can be a sin of omission or it can be flat out manipulation, guys. So either way, spin has no place in building trust and relationship capital. Please ban spin from your vocabulary. Limiting belief number three, PR is media relations. No, media relations is often used as a synonym for PR. That's wrong, it's so wrong. Me relations is focused only on one stakeholder group and it exercises only one set of skills. But organizations have a spectrum of stakeholders. You know this, you've got customers or constituents, employees. Maybe you have to deal with legislators or regulatory agencies or both. You know, you have vendors and suppliers, which right now relationships with those folks are very precious in the time that we're sitting in at this moment. You have advocacy groups, thought leaders, you get it. PR is the big tent or it's the management function that has its eyes, ears, and thumb on all of your stakeholder relationships. And when you've got all of those relationships, you're working them all with a, a good, well-rounded, consistent strategy. They start to work together for your company like 
you know, pistons in an eight-cylinder engine. So media relations is just one part of your larger responsibility. So again, PR and media relations, they are not synonyms. Are you hearing me, my marketing friends? They are not synonyms. Limiting belief number four, PR is marketing. No, PR is not marketing. Marketing is sales or sales support. In many business schools, they do teach the concept that PR is publicity, you know, and that it belongs in the org chart under marketing. But they're not the same function. PR, again, is the management function that identifies, it builds, it maintains mutually beneficial relationships between an organization and its stakeholders. It's not just a transaction. Now, it can be built uh, through multiple transactions, that relationship can be, but it's not just a sales transaction. Marketing is generally specific to consumers, and now marketing and PR, they, they can certainly work shoulder to shoulder. I used to be a national marketing manager for a B2B focused organization, and part of our value was to have our eyes and, and ears on the stakeholder conversations, and then we could use that intel to help us set up formal research opportunities like focus group surveys or triangulation of those methods. And then we'd use those opportunities to get deeper and richer input from our stakeholders. And that was usually for us, our direct B2B clients. Now, within that info, you know, we'd work across the business divisions, or I'm sure, I rather should say once we'd gather that information, then we would work across the business divisions to create like technology, training, uh, newsletters, email blasts, dialogue forums, conferences, a whole kind of toolkit of things. And then we'd put those tools in the hands of the sales force who would use them to develop relationships, you know, one customer at a time. It was a beautiful thing. I loved, loved working there. Now that's how marketing and PR can work together. But like, for example, with media relations, they're not synonyms. And one function is not inferior in the organization to the other. Limiting belief number five. PR is a glorified clerical support function. Let me begin this portion of the discussion by being very clear. There is no disrespect meant to our clerical support folks. They are the movers and shakers of organizations. They are they're the mortar that holds the bricks together. And guys, they rarely get credit for how important their work is to the overall success of an organization. Please be nice to your clerical teams. Bring them flowers, buy them donuts, remember their birthdays. But, you know, PR is a management function. I liken it to this elegant and complex radar system that gathers intel, puts it into perspective, pushes it up the chain to key decision makers, and then that's used to make management decisions, set company policy, influence legislation and regulation, impact social thought and trends. It also applies this formal process called the RPI process I, I spoke about earlier. So yes, it's another podcast for another day, but you know, and that creates this dialogue loop with stakeholders seeking first to understand, you know, where, uh, where your stakeholders are on the front end and then measuring that uh, where stakeholders are, you know, after they've had dialogue with you. So from there, your organization is able to bend, flex, it operates nimbly to changing situations and circumstances, all based on this evolving relationship with each stakeholder group. So let's put this into practice for a moment, or mental practice here. When our firm begins working with a client who's, uh, say they're experiencing some kind of stakeholder concern or friction, maybe with one, two, some, all, <laughs> you know, the first thing we do is we find out who within the organization owns the relationship with that stakeholder group, and we have them rate where they believe that relationship is and why it deserves or has earned that rating. So is the relationship a one, they hate us, or is it a five, they love us, or is it something in between? Now, brave organizations, 
me repeat that, brave organizations, they go the next step and they get that input directly from the stakeholder so they can compare what they, the organization thinks and what the actual stakeholder thinks. But the truth is most organizations, they're not brave. Sorry, remember earlier when I said we're scrappy, sassy and sincere? Well, this is that sincere part where we're pulling no punches here. So if your organization has not grown to that level, and I wanna say it hasn't grown, because I think everybody evolves, but if it's not grown to that level of courage yet, then take comfort in knowing that our work in these type of what we call co-orientation studies show that your internal relationship owners are usually pretty accurate. Usually they're within a few decimal points uh, of a rating. And, and that type of input helps to determine where are the risks in the relationship and where are their opportunities. And from there, you can determine what actions you need to take to reduce the risks and to maximize those opportunities. Yay, relationship capital, see? Here's another a little bit of an example to add to that. So we worked with an organization once that was being sued by its stakeholders, uh, was being called out in the news media by its community partners. I put air quotes around that. And it even had, they even had legislators that were ready to pass reactive and really some silly legislation that would have imposed new requirements that would take away some of their autonomy. So after many months of trying to get their CEO to go on a statewide listening tour, he finally relented. And we set some pretty hard and fast ground rules. Uh, this was not a time to go out and debate. We were not going in the field uh, to defend. We were not going out there to uh, make the organization's case. This was an exercise strictly to ask questions, listen, and bring that feedback in-house so we could reduce risk, we could develop solutions, and frankly, we could begin building bridges. And here in a nutshell is what happened. Number one, some pretty aggressive litigation that was in progress went away and agreements were struck that were mutually beneficial to all parties. The uh, legislation, it died in committee. And number three, community partners in 92 counties across the state joined the organizations, uh, joined, uh, joined this organization in a uh, one night candlelight event that kicked off at the same time in towns and cities all across the state. So that was a huge show of unity for a very vulnerable population of people that needed these groups to stop battling and start serving again. There, that's relationship capital at its finest, folks. Thank you for joining me for It's a PR Thing today. I've had fun talking with you about PR things. Please go out and make it a great day. 